You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all your faces on this lovely Memorial Day weekend. I mean, you just couldn't think of a better weather for Memorial Day weekend, right? Uh, this is beach weather through and through. So uh, thank you uh, again for those um, who, who were uh, committed to playing spike ball yesterday. I know we had, to, uh, we had to cancel our cookout because that was not cookout weather at all, but some of you were so dedicated uh, that you decided to brave the cold and the wet anyways. Uh, We are in the book of Acts, and we're continuing our study of really the early church, uh, reminding ourselves of uh, the birth of the church, the history of the church through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves today at the end of Acts chapter 4. Now, before we get into the text, um, I think we can all agree upon this. This is nothing new, uh, but when you were in middle school, if you were to flash back to your middle school days, which I just traumatized some of you already by saying that, you can imagine there were probably uh, just a few embarrassing moments, right? Um, I have so many embarrassing moments of my middle school days that I would not have enough minutes in the day to recount them to you, uh, but I will give you one that I remember very vividly. Um, does anybody remember uh, or, or where still uh, Lacoste uh, Polos? Anybody know of those, right? Okay, so some of y'all are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so in my middle school, there had two friends uh, who wore these, and um, let's just say we were not in the same tax bracket, but uh, they, they, they loved these Lacoste polos, which had the little crocodile symbol on them, and they wear them at, like literally every day, and I just, I wanted to be so cool just like them, but my mom would not buy one for me for obvious reasons. Um, I'm also the youngest of three, which means if you're the youngest, you understand this, uh, your clothes that you get or whatever your other brothers and sisters did not destroy uh, before you, and they just got passed down to you, right? So that was my wardrobe, and um, I wanted one of these Lacoste polos so bad. And so I went on a, a, a field trip, middle school field trip out of town, and we stopped by this store. It's like one of those like secondhand Goodwill stores. And I'm like, oh, I got, I got some money. My mom gave me a $20 bill. Maybe I could find something. And lo and behold, at the end of one of the racks was this lime green Lacoste polo. Youth large. Perfect for my skinny little scrawny frame I had. And I thought, yeah, I'm getting this. And so I bought it. I was so excited. Next week, we're at the lunch table. I'm wearing my polo. They're wearing their polos. And I'm thinking, this is awesome, man. I fit right in. And then I noticed something. The crocodile in my polo was turned the opposite direction. And I quickly realized that I didn't have the real thing. <laughs> I'm not sure what I had, but it was not a Lacoste polo. I was very embarrassed in that moment. Because when it put to the test of the real deal, it proved that it was, a, it was a fake. It was a fraud. It wasn't real. It wasn't sincere. It wasn't true to the brand. Now today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4. And what we're seeing is that for the first time, really, in Acts chapter 4, that the Christian's faith is put to test. It's the first time that, that it's put to a real test, a pressured situation. Up until this point in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, things are going so swimmingly in the church. I mean, the, the Spirit of God is poured out upon his people. Peter gives up, and he gives this passionate uh, uh, message, and he proclaims this truth. People are being saved by the thousands. Things are just going so great. This community loves one another. They're, they're sacrificing for one another. They're devoting themselves to one another. And then Peter and John perform this incredible miracle. And after that, as we saw last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, they get themselves in a bit of trouble. 
And now we see for the first time there's this new element that comes into the life of the church. And it's an element that's going to not only describe a lot of the book of Acts, but a lot of church history, and that is persecution. You begin to see the inevitable conflict when the kingdom of God is coming amidst the kingdom of this world. And as that clashes together here in Acts chapter 4, tension arises, conflict arises, testing arises. And what we see in this pressure, tense, difficult situation that the early church is facing for the very first time, what we see bubble up, what we see come out of this is something incredibly beautiful. We see a real, authentic faith. We see the real deal. That these believers really believed what Jesus said was true, what he did was true. And they were willing to go to the extents of persecution to live for him. And really, if you were to think of the main idea of this text today as they pray for boldness at the end of Acts chapter 4, it is simply this, that real Christianity produces an unshakable faith. That when it's put to the test, our belief in our God and who he is and what he has done, when it's put to the test and it's real, it's authentic, it produces this unshakable, unwavering faith that we see present here in these early Christians. This unshakable faith that comes from following Jesus. And so today in our text, we're going to look at what this unshakable faith looks like with looking at four distinct marks of what it looks like to have this this real belief in God that produces unshakable faith. And here they are. They'll be on the screen. The first is this, that they're constantly believing in God's sovereignty. And then we'll see that they're, they're knowing God intimately. They have this intimate knowledge of God. And then thirdly, we're going to see that they're growing in generosity at the end of the chapter. And then finally, we'll end with the end of their prayer, which they're experiencing God powerfully. Now, before we jump in the text uh, in Acts chapter 4 here, let's just kind of recount where we are in the book because we're kind of jumping in uh, to the middle of a scene here. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple, and there's this man who has been lame from birth. He's sitting there, and, and they, they heal him. God works in a powerful way through the name of Jesus Christ to heal this crippled man, and it really, it really sparks a lot of interest from people. And Peter comes out of the temple and he goes to the porch of the temple and he begins to proclaim the truth again of Christianity. The crowds are gathering, people are being saved, incredible things are happening, but there's people who notice. It's the leaders of the day. The people who were the leaders of the religious community, they notice. And Luke says that they were greatly annoyed by what was happening. And so they come together and they arrest Peter and John, and they hold him in custody overnight, and as they are, are, are debating what do we do, the power brokers of the day, the, these, uh, these officials, the chief priests, the elders, they come together, and they say, you know what, hey, let's interrogate these guys for their faith. And so they interrogate him, they put him on the spot, and through their interrogation, they find that there's really no fault uh, in them, and so they release them, and upon releasing them, they say this one caveat, which is really important, they say, hey, I'll, we'll release you, but you are never to speak of the name of Jesus. And then we find that Peter and John, they go back to this new community, this church, this, this gathering of people that has formed uh, over these past few days. And as they gather together, they're rejoicing. And we enter the scene right here in verse 23 with their belief in God's sovereignty. Let's pick up verse 23. It says, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they began their prayer like this, Sovereign Lord. What an incredible title. 
They begin their prayer, and the first thing that they address is that their Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign. But it's not just in the title, it's in the content of their entire prayer. If we were to continue reading, and and I'll just kind of summarize uh, for us the the, the rest of the text, they immediately jump to the Old Testament and to Psalm chapter 2. And they begin to talk about how that, that the world is against God's anointed one, and that God foretold this all the way back through the Psalms. And it is coming true now. And the events that they experienced just weeks before, when Jesus was tried, when he was interrogated, when he was falsely accused, and when he was killed, they're interpreting all those events under the canopy of God's perfect plan. Notice in verse 28 that they continue and they say that this is all happening according to whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, these early believers, they didn't believe what had happened was something that was haphazard, something that took God by surprise, something that was accidental. They believed that everything that was happening up until this moment was happening according to the sovereignty of God. They believed he was sovereign. Now, I think it begs the question for us to ask, what is sovereignty? Especially when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And if I were to try to give a definition uh, today, I think it would really involve three things. It would involve authority, power, and a plan. That God has absolute authority. And God has absolute power. And verse 28 reminds us that he has a perfect plan. And so if I were to try to, to condense that into two sentences, here, here's what I would say. That God is sovereign in that God has total authority to design the world according to his plan. His total authority to design the world according to his plan. And he has total power to govern the world so that his plan unfolds hear that? He has total authority to design the world according to his plan, and he also has total power, ultimate power, to govern the world so that his plan unfolds. And here we find that these early Christians, when pressure comes in, when things get difficult, this is the truth that they rush to, that their Lord is sovereign. Now, don't we love thinking about the sovereignty of God when things are going well? I mean, we don't, don't we, right? It's like, God is sovereign, man. I got this new job. Like, oh, what a blessing, you know? But they run to God's sovereignty when all hell is breaking loose. Now, I just want to give a brief caveat because your, your mind's probably turning right now because when we think about the sovereignty of God, inevitably there's so many questions that come up, right? There's logical questions. We're, we're talking about a really heady, big topic here, something that can't necessarily be addressed in one sermon. So just hold on to those questions. I'd love to talk to you another time about those. Uh, but what we find when we talk about a topic so vast and so big about the sovereignty of God, the first thing it draws us to is this, that we are not him. And that's a beautiful thing, that we are not God. And that God is not just some intelligent human up in heaven. When we think about the, the sovereignty of God, we are approaching the infinite, the unfathomable, holy God. Hence why in Isaiah 55, he says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. and His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We should never be willing to accept a view of God that we can fully understand. Because if to do so, it's just looking in the mirror at ourselves, right? But here they lift up their eyes to the sovereignty of God. And they teach us a few things about how we can handle the difficulties in our own life with real, authentic, unshakable faith. I think the first thing that really points out here in verse 24 is that sovereignty gives us perspective. 
It gives us perspective in our suffering. If you look at verse 24, it says, They lift up their voices together to God and say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, one of the biggest difficulties that we face when we're going through hard times is nearsightedness, right? We focus in on the problem right in front of us, and we have a hard time seeing the the fullness of the story that is unfolding all around us. Right, if I were to try to coach you right now and say, like, hey, if you're going through a really difficult problem, I'd probably tell you, like, hey, focus on the problem, be specific, pray about that. But notice what they do here. They don't focus on the problem at hand at the beginning of their prayer. They lift their eyes up to God, and they focus on something that seems irrelevant. God, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They focus on the fact that there is this vast reality that God has created all things, heaven and earth, all continents, the galaxy. Now, why would they lift their eyes off of their problems that they're dealing with in this moment and focus on something like this? Because when you think about the reality of God being sovereign, that means that his plan involves all of reality. Let me put it this way for you. If you try to understand the full context of a book by just ripping out one page, you're going to miss a lot, right? And sometimes if we narrow it down to our problems and our difficulties and we don't see the full picture, it's like ripping a single page out of a book. That book's got a lot more pages that are unfolding. And God's story is so much bigger than just one situation we find ourselves in. And sometimes it's really difficult to understand what's happening in that moment. But what our brothers and sisters here are teaching us is that when we have a hard time understanding the sufferings that we're dealing with, look up. God, I don't know why, why persecution is coming in AD 33 to these Christians, but what we do know, God, is that you are the one who created the heavens and the earth. We do know that you will reign forever. We do know that you are God and that you have a perfect plan for us. There's something here that we can learn about how when we have difficulties in this life that we can look up. Now, I'm a a sports fan, and I probably share way too many sports analogies, so I apologize for that, but uh, this is a great illustration, right? When football season rolls around, or even baseball season, if you're a baseball fan, and you're you're cheering your team, you're so excited at the beginning of the season, and they just go on this losing streak at the beginning of the year, right? What's your immediate thought? You're like, man, we're tanking this year. Like, this is going to be a bad year. We're not making the playoffs, especially if you're a fan of any team in Washington. Like, you immediately just go down the drain saying, this is never going to work. We're never going to win anything. But what do the coaches and the players always say after they lose their first game or two games? Hey, it's a long season, right? There's a lot left to play. There's a lot of ball left to play, right? There's a lot, lot of games left. And then it always shocks us at the end of the year that some team that went on a losing streak makes the playoffs, and we're shocked by it because in the moment we couldn't see the bigger picture unfolding. It gives us perspective. God is up to something even in those moments that we can't see it happening. But I think the second reason why this gives us encouragement today is that it gives us hope that good can come from bad things. Look at the end of verse 28. In verse 27, I should say that, again, he points to all that is happening, and they they pray and they say, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they did what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible is that God can take the evil acts of Satan against his church and turn it against Satan. He takes the evil acts that Satan has planned for his church and turns it against him. And he does the same thing in the crucifixion. God takes something so, so uh, just disastrous in the fact that death, death, the sting of death, he takes that and Jesus goes and he dies on the cross. And what comes out of that? Life. 
victory, eternal life. See, you might remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, he had his brothers who sold him into slavery. He lived in Egypt, and while he's in Egypt, he became this great and powerful man, and then the Bible tells us that this famine comes to the land, and everybody's looking for food, and Joseph's able to procure food for his family, and he saves his family. It's this incredible redemptive story. Joseph, at the end of Genesis 50, he says this, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. You see, in our stories, God can take things that seem evil, that seem broken, that seem bad, and he just doesn't forgive us for those things, but he leverages those things to bring about beauty in our lives. He takes things that we often see as failures, things that we see as brokenness, and he doesn't simply forgive us for those evil things. He takes those things and he brings beauty into our lives. And that's really good news for us today. Because God is sovereign, we can't mess up his plans. We often think we can mess up our own plans for our own life. We often live in, in guilt and fear of messing up too much. Because God is sovereign, he works in a way that sometimes we can't understand. That even in the brokenness of our lives, he is weaving out beauty for us. That he is working good in our lives. These early Christians, they believed that both the good and the bad, God was in control. And it's really the first mark in this prayer of what real faith in Jesus looks like. The second is this, that they knew God intimately. They were knowing God intimately. Pick up in verse 25. Notice how they begin their prayer. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm chapter 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, do you notice what's happening here? If you, if you just draw back and think practically, what are they doing here? In their prayer, they immediately run to the scriptures. The first thing that comes to their mind when they pray is God's word, the promises of the Old Testament. And what does that, what does that teach us about these early Christians? It teaches us that they knew God. They knew God. They knew his word. They knew exactly, precisely where to run to and where to pray in this difficult situation. Now, there's a difference between knowing God intimately and knowing about God, right? The book of James tells us, and, and James tells us that even the demons know about God. In fact, they know a lot more about God than probably we do. <laughs> they don't know God intimately. Here we see evidence that these early Christians, they knew God. They knew him personally. They knew him intimately. There was relationship between them and their God. They weren't living off of secondhand experiences of, of, of God with Peter and John. They weren't just living off of the enthusiasm of the apostles. They knew God. They had relationship with him, and it's evident in their prayer life here. It's evident in the way in which immediately they run to the scriptures when they begin to pray in their circumstance. Now, prayer really does communicate a lot about our relationship with God. For instance, if we pray and we're just talking to God, like reading our grocery list to him, we're just talking about ourselves and not God, that's not much of a relationship, is it? It's not very personal, right? It's like treating God as our Instacart account, right? Our Uber Eats. <laughs> just say, bring me this, bring me this, bring me this. It's not very personal, is it? 
But when these early Christians pray to God, there's something different. They're not focusing on their needs. They're focusing on who he is. As Eugene Peterson, this great scholar and and writer said, he said that prayer is not really talking to God. True prayer is answering God. For God has already spoken in his word and prayer is just a response to what he has said. I love that. God has spoken in his word. He has revealed himself through the Bible. And here we see that these early Christians are just praying that back to him. Now imagine this. This is, this is an illustration here. Imagine that you're meeting someone and you're meeting them face to face. And they tell you their story, an incredible story. It's beautiful, it's wise, it's fascinating, it's amazing, it's moving, it's telling. And then they end their story and they say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about. And then you respond to their story as you're sitting there across them with coffee and you begin for the next five to ten minutes talking and you don't mention anything that they said. You act as if you heard nothing. You make no reference to anything that person just said at all. All you do is just talk about your needs. Now, that would be quite awkward, right, (laughs) if you did that. But a lot of times, if we're honest, that's how we treat our relationship with God, don't we? He's talking to us through his word. He's revealing himself to us. And as Eugene Peterson says here, that prayer is not just talking to God, it's answering God. Because God has revealed his story to us in the Bible. He has revealed a massive amount of things about himself. He has poured out his heart in his word as it were. And we open up our mouths to pray as these early Christians did. We ought to base our communication on what he has communicated to us. Now this is why this is encouraging for us. Because if we think about this kind of relationship that these early Christians had, notice how empowering this is for them that immediately when they find themselves in a difficult position, they know exactly where to run. They know exactly what to do to call upon who God is, a God that they knew personally and intimately. Notice they go straight to his word and they, they take one of his attributes, his wisdom. They take the fact that he is sovereign, he is in control, and that he's working all things according to his plan. And that's exactly what they needed in this moment to hear. That in their distress... God was for them, that in their distress, they knew God personally and intimately, that he would come through just like his word said he would. And just like them, when we find ourselves in in situations where we're fearful and we're scared, I mean, these these first Christians, they're, they're humans as well, right? And I'm sure they felt anxiety in this moment. I'm sure they felt scared. And immediately they go to the Lord and they pray for boldness. They pray for courage. And how do they do it? By looking to who their God is in the scripture and reminding themselves of the God that they personally know and who knows them. And God heals their heart with who he is, with his character, with his word. Do you know God intimately like this? Do you know him through his word? Because the beauty of Christianity is that you can know God, that Jesus Christ has made a way through faith in him that we can be known by God and that we can know him. And these early Christians, they knew God. Thirdly, they grow in generosity. Let's look at the end of the chapter here, verse 32. We'll come back to the end of their prayer in just a moment. But let's look at the end of the chapter in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So let's just point this out for a second. Imagine this. There are thousands upon thousands of believers in the church right now. Like like close to probably 10,000. And it says that they are unified. (laughs) That's amazing. 
there's only one thing that could bring about that unify, unifying force, and that's their belief in Jesus Christ. He's the one who unifies them here. And in verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. And then he gives a test study of this. He says, And then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We see this radical generosity in this early church, right? We see this calling to give of ourselves. Now, generosity sometimes is, is hard to come by in life. I don't know about you, but I, I, I get so nervous when I go to grocery stores and I'm in the checkout line and I check out all my stuff and then the, the, the cashier says, would you like to donate to this charity today? Right? Anybody ever find themselves like in a situation like, I don't know what to say, like you just feel like you've been taken advantage of in the moment, right? You feel, you feel guilted into one of being generous. Like, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll give a dollar. That's fine. Uh, but in the moment, you feel like you've been taken advantage of, right? Because guilt is not a great motive for generosity. It's not, it really doesn't motivate us to want to be generous, this early church, they weren't motivated by guilt. They weren't motivated by an institutional obligation, right? It wasn't as the apostles were calling them and saying, hey, guys, you want to be a part of the church? Sign this contract, drop your keys off at the door, drop your deed off to your house at the offering plate, and then you're in, right? It's not what's happening here. What's happening is that every single one of these believers have come to a place where their possessions don't possess them anymore. Every single one of these believers came to a place where their possessions did not possess them anymore. How does that happen? Well, verse 33 gives us the motivation for this, that great grace was upon them. Grace, this hallmark of the Christian faith, that our faith is built upon a gift, that God in the gospel was generous to us, that he gave his son for the loss, for the hurting, for those who need forgiveness, for those who are walking in darkness and need the light of life. And when we experience the gospel of God's grace, it produces in us this generosity. That our possessions don't possess us anymore. That we're bought with a price by someone else. Now, I think sometimes one of the reasons we struggle with generosity is, is not necessarily the things that we often jump to. Sometimes we think, well, we live in a materialistic society, so just, it just is kind of innate within us to want to hoard things and, and want more things. Or, or greed is just the output of life. You can be greedy if you have a little or a lot, right? But greed's just something we struggle with in our society. But I think really, if you look at the context of this passage, I think one of the things that probably we underestimate, and the reason why we're not generous, is that we're scared. Not that we're stingy, but that we're fearful of what we might lose. And I just want to encourage you today that your possessions, your bank account, your investments, your uh, cryptocurrency, uh, all those things, as you well aware, uh, do not bring security to your life. They can't. They can't bring the security and the peace that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Christianity is not a call to neglect yourself to, to the point where you just, okay, give up all your stuff and don't worry about taking care of yourself. That's not what's happening here. Christianity is a calling for us to not only think about how we can prayerfully use what God has given us to take care of ourselves, but also take care of others. And that's generosity. Generosity is saying that there are others that are in need, and these possessions, they don't possess me anymore. 
They're not mine in the first place because I serve a living and sovereign God who has given them to me. And here's the key of generosity that I have found in my own life. And when you're generous, you get more life, not less. And that's built right into the gospel. The most famous passage, maybe perhaps the most famous verse in all of Christianity, John 3.16, reminds us of this. That God so loved the world that he gave. He was so generous in giving his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Giving of his son meant that Jesus would die, and through that death, life. In the same way, when we're generous with our things, what we will find, it is more life-giving. It is more joy-filling because we remind ourselves that we serve a sovereign Lord who has given us everything in Christ Jesus. And a hallmark of these early Christians, a mark of their real authentic faith is that they were willing to give away what they have because they couldn't give away what God had given them in Christ. He had given them everything, and it calls them to be incredibly generous with what they have. And then finally, we see in verse 29 through 31 at the end of their prayer that they're experiencing God powerfully. Let's pick up verse 29. It says, And now the Lord, they pray, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, listen to this, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they pray this prayer asking for God to give them boldness. What does God do? He fills them with the Holy Spirit. And so much power is taking place in this room that that Luke says that the room is literally being shaken. Now what's the significance of this room being shaken? Well, when you look into the Bible, anytime that God comes down, on a mountaintop experience in the Old Testament, anytime that his presence come down, the earth quakes. Why? Because the earth cannot bear who God is. Anytime God comes down, the earth quakes. Why? Because we as, as sinful human beings, we, we are not holy as God is holy. His holiness is too great for us. His, his glory is too great for us. That's why he says to Moses, like, if you see my glory, you'll die. It will quake you to pieces. It will shake you to pieces. But what is different about this situation? When God comes down in power, it doesn't quake the people, it quakes the room. That's the point. The point is that the place was shaken, but not the believers. In fact, as the place is being shaken, the believers are becoming more unshakable in their faith. Now, how is that so? If you go back in the Gospels, you would see that there are two other earthquakes mentioned in the Gospels in Matthew 27 and Matthew 28. Matthew 27, verse 45, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's approaching the ninth hour, the sky is dark, and Jesus cries out his last breath. And in that moment, the Bible says that the earth quakes and the rocks split. What's happening in that moment is God is coming down in divine justice on the cross. He is coming down and the divine justice that we deserve because of our sin is being placed upon Jesus on the cross. And in that moment, his body is being broken for us. God comes down in power. And in that moment, Jesus, he is shaken for us. And then in Matthew 28, 
Three days later, Easter morning, it says an angel of the Lord comes down and the earth quakes and the stone is rolled away. In that moment, God's power comes down again through resurrection. And death is what shakes. Death is what's cracked to pieces for the believer that we now experience life. Mean that prior to this moment that they were empty of the Spirit? No. To be filled with the Spirit is to see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is to make Jesus more beautiful to us. You see, in this moment, it's kind of like this, if I were to try to give an illustration. My daughter, Ellie, who many of you know, she's really, really sweet and sassy, all in one. Uh, she is my daughter, always. She is legally my child, always, right now. She does not exist to be my daughter. But when we're in the living room together and we're dancing and I'm embracing her and I'm telling her how much I love her, does she become more my daughter in that moment? No. But what she's experiencing is a greater sense of her father's love for her. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When it fills us, we are experiencing something so real. Something we know, like God is sovereign and he is powerful. But when the Spirit fills us, it becomes so real to us that we can have the boldness that these early believers had. There's no fear in Christ. God's love, we know God's love, but when the Spirit fills us, his love becomes so real for us that we don't feel shame, we don't feel guilt anymore. We know just how much he loves us in Christ Jesus. The filling of the Spirit is what gives these believers both comfort and confidence to pray these words at the end of their prayer. Lord, we see these threats, but rather than removing them from us, give us boldness to speak your word. Even in the midst of the storm, give us boldness. Because of Christ, we don't have to be shaken. We can have an unshakable faith with boldness and worship knowing that we have a God who has saved us, a God who now lives inside of us, a God who is for us and will never be against us. So as we come to our conclusion and we look towards the Lord's Supper as Bradley leads us in just a moment, I just want to encourage you with this. As we think about our sovereign Lord and that God in his purposes cannot fail and at the center of his plan and his purpose is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, then we too can be filled with the Spirit to have the confidence and the boldness to make him known. We too can have the confidence and the boldness to have this unshakable faith, this real deal faith that even when pressure comes, even when suffering comes, even when hardship comes, we can have boldness and courage and comfort to know Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can know him intimately we can trust his sovereignty. We can give generously because we have an unshakable faith in knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.